Section 19 of Claimants to Royalty. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anne Boulay. Claimants to Royalty by John H. Ingram. Chapter 19. The False Richard IV of England. A.D. 1491-99. to the fate of the leading conspirators in Lambert Simnel's case, instead of acting as a warning to deter others from similar attacks, really appeared as if it were only designed as a prelude to a far more serious attempt to wrest the crown from Henry's head. Unfortunately for the welfare of England, no sooner had the pseudo-Edward been disposed of than the king had to contend with another and far more redoubtable claimant to the throne. In 1491, this new aspirant to the crown began to noise his pretensions abroad, proclaiming himself to be Richard, the younger of the two sons of the deceased King Edward, who were supposed to have been murdered in the tower by order of their uncle, the late King Richard III. This young claimant, admitted to have been a youth of noble aspect, and features much resembling the late Edward IV, whilst acknowledging that his elder brother had been killed, asserted that he had been permitted to escape. In a letter, which is now in the British Museum, and which the youth wrote to Isabella of Spain, he states that at the time his brother was murdered, he was nine years of age, that he was sent out of England secretly, in the custody of two persons, and was compelled to take an oath that he would not divulge his name and rank to anyone until after a certain number of years. Having fulfilled the conditions of his promise, he left Portugal, where he had resided for some time, and in 1492 landed in Ireland. The citizens of Cork, which was the first city he honored with a visit, undeterred by the exposure of the late pretender to royalty, were for warmly espousing the cause of this claimant, yet were somewhat restrained by the prudence of the new Earl of Kildare. At this critical moment, Charles, King of France, being at war with Henry the Seventh, sent a cordial invitation to the Soi de Saint Prince to come to Paris. The invitation was readily accepted, and the pretender once more crossed the seas. In France, he was received everywhere with royal honors, and treated by everybody as the Duke of York, heir to the English crown. This courtesy was, however, as Bacon points out, doubtless only trickery on the part of the French king, in order to force Henry into a peace. A treaty was speedily concluded between the two monarchs, one result of which was the dismissal of the young adventurer, King Charles refusing nevertheless to deliver up his youthful guest to the English king's untender mercies. Forced to forsake France, the pretender betook himself to the court of Burgundy, where the old duchess, whose nephew he claimed to be, protected and assisted all adherents of the House of York. The old Duchess Margaret, sister of Edward IV, had long asserted her belief in the existence of one of her nephews, and was only too likely to acknowledge any presentable claimant. But the support she had rendered Simnel in his recent exploit did not tell in favor of her present protege. Upon this occasion she was, or pretended to be, very searching in her scrutiny into the adventurer's story, but at last, appearing to be perfectly convinced of the justice of his claims to kinship, she recognized him as her nephew, embraced him affectionately, styled him the White Rose of England, appointed him a guard of thirty persons, and furnished him with everything suitable for the maintenance of his presumed princely rank. 
the lad indeed is universally admitted to have displayed in all his conduct a noble bearing and if he were as henry's partisans assert only a wandering trader's son he certainly did credit to the alleged secret instructions of his putative aunt lord verulam to account for the likeness between the young pretender and the late king edward as also to explain his courtly bearing and princely deportment tells a strange and extremely improbable story to the effect that the lad was son of a converted jew named variously john and peter osbeck a resident of tournay but whom business brought to london this osbeck resided in london for some time having with him his wife who during the period of their residence in the english metropolis was confined of a boy osbeck says bacon being known in court the king either out of a religious nobleness because he the father was a convert or upon some private acquaintance did him the honour to be godfather to his child and it is to be presumed endowed him with regal inclinations this needless legend is set in contrast with another in the next page wherein the chronicler forgetting the religious nobleness of the licentious monarch subjoins that it was said king edward the fourth was his godfather which as it is somewhat suspicious for a wanton prince to become gossip in so mean a house and might make a man think that he might indeed have in him some base blood of the house of york so at the least it might give occasion to the boy in being called king edward's godson or perhaps in sport king edward's son to entertain such thoughts in his head for tutor he had none for aught that appears as Lambert Simnel had, until he came unto the Lady Margaret, who instructed him. The advocate for the crafty, avaricious old Tudor king next indulges in a lengthy and apparently imaginative account of the secret tuition of the comely lad by the Duchess of Burgundy, with whose innermost thoughts Bacon professes the closest acquaintanceship. He shrewdly guesses that Perkin Warbeck, had counterfeited for so long a time the person of the murdered prince that at last with off telling a lie he was turned by habit almost into the thing he seemed to be and from a liar to a believer be this as it may the soi disant richard comfortably installed at the court of flanders speedily discovered means of opening communications with england many members of the highest families including so it was alleged sir william stanley a relative of the king and who had even saved henry's life and crown at bosworth were involved in the plot having for its object the overthrow of the reigning monarch and apparently the substitution for him of the burgundian protege henry was well provided with spies who kept him closely informed of all that was brewing but his efforts to obtain possession of les garçons as he termed the claimant were unavailable whilst all his declarations that he was perfectly at his ease with respect to the impostor as every one knew who and what he was only served to display his anxiety by means of the king's gold the whole of the conspiracy on foot was revealed sir robert clifford one of the conspirators betrayed his companions for five hundred pounds and a free pardon and two other accomplices for sums proportionate to their lower rank the whole details of the plot were unraveled, and the chief members of it, including Stanley, were brought to the block. Stanley's complicity in the Perkin Warbeck conspiracy has been doubted by modern historians, 
who have not hesitated to aver that his wealth was his principal crime in the king's eyes. Indeed, the only charge that was made against him was, that if he were sure the claimant was King Edward's son, he would not bear arms against him. The discovery of the plot, and the fate of its principal concocters, appears to be a death-blow to the young adventurer's cause, but he, all undaunted, taking advantage of Henry's absence in the north, with the aid of the Duchess of Burgundy, fitted out an expedition, and tried to effect a rising in England. Some portion of his followers landed at Deal, but instead of obtaining assistance, were attacked by the Kentish men, and either killed at once or made prisoners, and subsequently hanged. Discouraged by this hostile reception, Perkin returned to Flanders, whence he shortly betook himself once more to Ireland. There he again failed to arouse the populace on his behalf, although joined by Desmond and some others of less note. As, says Bacon, there was nothing left for Perkin but the blustering affection of a wild and naked people, and as he had lost three of his vessels in a futile attempt to capture Waterford, he had to relinquish his efforts in that quarter. Again repelled in his efforts to obtain a footing in Ireland, the intrepid wanderer crossed over to Scotland, to the warlike monarch of which country, he carried recommendatory letters, not only from the Duchess of Burgundy, but also from the French king and the emperor of Germany. By the Scottish king, the presumed prince was received with open arms, and in every way treated as if he were the personage he claimed to be. There is every reason for believing that James credited his guest's story. Outwardly, at least, he paid him all deference, addressed him as cousin, and gave him for wife his own relative, the beautiful Lady Catherine Gordon, daughter of the Earl of Huntley, and granddaughter of James I of Scotland. It seems very unlikely that the Scottish monarch would have sanctioned the marriage of Lady Catherine with the adventurer unless convinced of his royal birth. Under the pretext of assisting his youthful guest to regain his dominions, James headed two warlike incursions into England. Unable to resist so good an opportunity of looting, the Scottish army carried off everything of value. And when the young adventurer, according to Polydor Virgil, the historian, feigning to be distressed at the devastation inflicted, implored the king to spare his miserable subjects. James replied sneeringly that it was very generous to be so careful of what did not belong to him, as not a man had yet joined his standard. No one, indeed, of any consequence, did join the claimant upon these occasions, and as the raids proved disastrous to the Scottish forces, Henry was enabled to make peace on his own terms with James, offered him his eldest daughter Margaret in marriage, and forced him to withdraw his protection from Perkin. Compelled once more to resume his search for an asylum, the luckless pretender, accompanied by his beautiful wife and a few faithful followers, left Scotland, not, however, without bearing away with him some substantial proof of the Scottish king's regard. Again he sought shelter in Ireland, but the Irish, appearing less disposed than before to espouse his cause, he departed for Cornwall, where much discontent prevailed on account of Henry's oppressive taxation. With only three vessels and seventy men, the claimant landed at Whitsand Bay, near Land's End, on the 7th of September, 1497. He sent his wife to St. Michael's Mount for safety, and then, at the head of an irregular body of three thousand men, whom he had got together by liberal promises, he marched on Exeter, to which city he laid siege, 
in compliance with the advice of his adherents, that he should endeavor to make himself master of some walled town. He sent a demand to the citizens to surrender to him, but as he had no artillery to enforce his claims, his assumed title of Richard the Fourth, King of England, inspired little reverence, and after some unsuccessful assaults, he was compelled to raise the siege and hastily retired to Taunton. Seeing clearly how utterly incompetent his undisciplined forces were to compete with the veteran troops Henry was sending against him, he forsook them in the night, and, accompanied by several of his principal followers, fled to the monastery of Beaulieu, in the New Forest, and there claimed sanctuary. His followers, left without a leader, surrendered without an effort. A number of them were hanged, and the rest heavily fined. Not daring to violate the privileges of a sanctuary, Henry had the Beaulieu Monastery securely guarded. The meanwhile, he contrived to obtain possession of the Lady Catherine Gordon, mightily afraid that she might give birth to a child, in which case, as Bacon shrewdly remarks, the business would not have ended in Perkins' person. The politic king received the royal lady kindly, and sent her to the queen, awarded her honorable allowance for the support of her estate, which she enjoyed both during the king's life and many years after. Determined not to let go of his hold on Perkin, the king promised him a full pardon upon condition that he confessed himself an impostor. Unable to discover any means of escape, the pretender accepted Henry's conditions, and on the 5th of October surrendered to the royal troops at Taunton. He did not reach London until the end of November, and on his arrival was sent as a prisoner to the tower. At first, the supposed Richard was treated with much respect, and the evidence of his official examination kept strictly secret, although the garbled and absurd account of it, which Henry caused to be published, was so contradictory and generally unsatisfactory, that the men missing of that they looked for, says the chronicler, looked about for they knew not what, and were in more doubt than before. Perkin, on his way to the tower, was made to traverse the city on horseback, but not in an ignominious fashion, and although scoffed at by some, by the majority was treated with respect. After about six months of detention, the pretender contrived or was permitted to escape, but such diligent pursuit was made that he was compelled to again take sanctuary, and this time in the Priory of Sheen, in Surrey. As soon as his retreat was publicly known, the king was advised to take him forth and hang him, but Henry was too prudent for such a course. At the intercession of the prior of Sheen, the king promised to spare the fugitive's life, bidding them take him forth and set the knave in the stocks. Taken from his place of refuge and brought back to London, the wretched youth was fettered and placed for a whole day in the stocks, and on the following day, the 14th of June, 1499, was compelled to read from a scaffold, erected in Cheapside, a lengthy and rambling confession, in which, among other matters, he acknowledged himself to be Perkin, son of John Warbeck, a Flemish tradesman, and that he had been taught to enact his part by various enemies of King Henry. After the second reading of this confession, which was so badly composed, that it served rather to confirm than dissipate the belief that the so-called Perkin was the personage he had assumed to be, the prisoner was again incarcerated in the tower, where he became the companion and friend of the unfortunate Edward, Earl of Warwick, who Lambert Simnel had formerly counterfeited. 
such was the fascination of the claimant's manners that he not only won the friendship of his fellow prisoners but also the favor of his keepers the four servants of sir john digby the lieutenant who apparently conspired together to permit the escape of the two captives and to aid them to excite another insurrection the whole plot in all probability originated in the cunning of henry who made it a pretext for the trial and execution of both his troublesome prisoners the opinion of the king's great wisdom as bacon dexterously recounts it did surcharge him with a sinister fame that perkin was but his bait to entrap the earl of warwick about the time of this presumed plot and most opportunely for henry another claimant to the name and title of the young earl of warwick appeared in suffolk although this pretender was speedily taken and executed the state of disquietude these events kept the country in afforded the king ample excuse for proceeding to extremities notwithstanding the fact that the whole affair was regarded as a subtle device of the sovereign accordingly on the sixteenth of november fourteen nineteen perkin was brought to trial and was found guilty upon the indictment of having conspired in company with the hapless earl of warwick to raise sedition and destroy the king upon the twenty-third of the month perkin was taken from the tower to tyburn and after having again read his confession and vouched for its truth was executed such was the end of this strange drama which was as bacon remarks one of the longest plays of that kind the case of perkin warbeck is one of the most mysterious on record and in attempting to gauge the truth or falsity of his claim to royalty it must not be overlooked that the only contemporary records of him and his adventures are by those who professedly wrote on king henry's behalf and were not therefore likely to be over-scrupulous in suppressing any facts tending to support the pretender's claims the confession wrung from him under the fear of death is of little or no value the absence of all allusion in it to the duchess of burgundy seems to disprove the assertion that it was written by perkin himself whilst the absurd statement it contained that he a thorough master apparently of the language did not learn english until forced to after his arrival at cork is most suspicious he was never confronted with his supposed mother the queen dowager whom henry had in safekeeping at bermondsey nor were any judicial steps taken to expose his imposture if such it were the king was most studiously careful to keep all records of the affair out of the people's sight he took tyrrell the supposed chief murderer of the young princes into his favor and never had what might have satisfied the suspicions of many the remains of the two lads publicly exhumed according to the account of sir thomas more the murdered princes were first buried at the stairfoot deep in the ground under a heap of stones but were afterwards taken up at the desire of king richard and reburied by the tower chaplain privately in a place that by reason of his death never came to light this account if true would seem to cast a doubt upon the identity of the small bones discovered under the staircase in the reign of charles the second and by him had interred and commemorated as the remains of the royal princes the circumstantial account of lord verulam is so enveloped in mystery and innuendo and his desire to screen the tudor king is so self-evident that it has caused many including the sophisticated and shallow walpole to believe and assert that perkin warbeck was indeed the royal personage he claimed to be end of the false richard the fourth of england